agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. Welcome to politics, guys. A place for bipartisan passion, stability, and politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined face-to-face with Ken Katkin, a professor of law at uh, Chase Law School. Ken, it's, welcome to Chase Law School. Yeah, we're here in Chase Law School, Trey. It's, it's nice to, to finally see your bald head with my own two Exactly. Eyes. <laughs> well, it's, it's bald all the way down, as a matter of fact. You know, like, yeah. Yeah, you're all happy that you're not seeing us, as a matter of fact, on that front. Yeah, so we're actually doing this in Chase Law School at Northern Kentucky University's campus because I happen to be here for the Flying Pig. Um, and so that was a lot of fun uh, to get to be back in my hometown. And then, Ken, it's just like an extended work day for you, I guess. You're like, let's come back into my classroom. Yeah, I had I had a faculty meeting at noon. We're done with classes, but I'm yeah. I was like, let's meet right after my faculty meeting in my classroom. And this is in fact my one of my classrooms. Oh, so we're in your classroom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. I didn't even realize yeah. that. <laughs> so where do the bed students sit? Like just in. in... <laughs> This, this, as you can tell, it's a small classroom, and I only teach an upper-level elective in here, and uh, they're all good students in there. Okay, I, li- yeah, the I big, like to hear the big that. big classes I can point to where the bad students are. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, uh, let's see, what, what, what are your big class? Right? What, what is your, what's your big class, excuse me? I, I teach constitutional law, which is a required class for everybody. And that's going to be kind of one of your make-or-breaks, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so there's usually 65 or 70 students in that class. Um, yeah. But in here, I teach federal courts, and I had eight students in federal courts this oh. semester, so that that's a little better. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Well, what we're going to do in the room today is we're going to be talk, uh, covering Title 42. We're going to talk about Trump's big defamation suit this week. We're going to talk about the so-called town hall. Uh, we're going to talk about George Santos. We're going to talk about the new EPA rules that are coming up. Uh, and then we're going to get into uh, Ross and the dormant commerce clause. And so that's what we're going to be doing in this room instead of, I guess, you know, con law. Or <laughs> So we're going to take that all on. Okay, so Ken, this week, I thought we'd, we'd start without dealing with Trump. We'll get to Trump later, right? So <laughs> I don't know. So unlike CNN, I think we're going to give him second shift. Uh, if for no other reason that I just feel like we should give him shit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, so yeah, I don't know, our blood pressure will stay low or something. Uh, but obviously last night, uh, uh, Title 42 uh, uh, finally goes down. And, and so to give, a, give our listeners a little bit about this, right? So Public Health Order 42 allowed immigration policies for migrants to basically be really quickly expelled. And what they were being uh, expelled on uh, was effectively the fact that we were having a transmittable disease. And and again, this kind of gets into the weed, but I don't know. Nobody else is really talking about it. So let's get into the weeds a little bit. Normally, when you're talking about uh, immigration, you're actually talking about uh, Title VIII of the U.S. Code, which deals with border enforcement and those kinds of issues. But once the CDC invokes kind of their powers during the pandemic, we get moved to Title 42. uh, And the piece of it that's really important is, is that, again, it can prohibit migrants from entering the country, even those who are seeking asylum, which is unique and that's worth understanding here. Uh, to prevent the spread of a contagious disease. Now, last night that ends and we go back to being under uh, uh, Title Eight. And so what kind of was happening at the border uh, had been reported by journalists is you kind of have a growing number of individuals uh, in Rio Grande and other locations uh, that are trying to decide like, okay, when do I cross or not cross? Because the asylum seeking rules 
uh, are different under these two circumstances, vastly different under these, these two circumstances. And, and what makes this even more complicated, and this is something I'm really curious to get your point of view on, Ken, uh, was is the Biden administration actually issued a new form of this rule that then went into effect literally today uh, as Title uh, 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 Eight comes back up. And one of the key components of it is, is that if you're an asylum seeker, there's going to be a, a much bigger barrier to entering the United States under the rule because now if you pass through a country where you could have sought asylum while you were waiting, you then effectively get kicked out immediately. And I mean, to kind of, again, put some of this in perspective, this, uh, th this Title 42, this has been used extensively both under the Trump and the Biden administrations. I was looking this up uh, uh, under the, uh, most of his years under Trump. When he was using it, it was used 2.7 million times a year. Uh, and then last year, Biden used it 2.3 million times. So we're, we're talking a lot of people. So can... Biden's in a very difficult position in many ways, right? So we, this is going to come to an end. The, the pandemic in this kind of policy sense is coming to an end. So we're returning to normality. But at the same time, he wants what effectively seems to be to me much what Trump wanted when it came to some of these rules. He's kind of coming out maybe a little more hard line than one might expect. Or maybe that's just because... He kind of agrees, maybe not with the severity of the Republican uh, criticism of him, but in part is worried about what's taking place at the border currently, given the number of people who are kind of in this limbo state of what they're going to do and trying to convince more of them to not hang out directly at the border. What's your take on all of that? Yeah, well, right. It, it's it's a the problem that Biden is confronting, which is a, a very, you know, just a, a very real problem that any president would have to confront is uh, I think you talked about the number of cases. I think about two million of those cases are backlogged. Right. So there's there's currently uh, yeah, numbers you were quoting were even higher than two yeah, million. But yeah. I think I think two million of them. Um, there's already that many people in the pipeline who've made asylum claims and can't get uh, in front of um, uh, immigration judges because there's just not enough immigration judges. Um, and he has tried to address that. I think he's been able to hire about 140 more immigration judges uh, than there were the day he took office. But it's um, that's still just a drop in the bucket compared to two million cases. And then I think another problem is that through through misinformation or whatever um, in 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 countries south of here, you know, the word seems to sort of be out that. Um, now that the Title 42 restrictions are expiring, this would be a good time to come to the Yeah, border right. Like, let's to, line up. Yeah, you know, yeah, let's yeah. wait. We're waiting yeah, for the Friday yeah, deadline. Yeah, yeah. So there's just this incredible uh, onslaught. And, you know, no, no, no president could just, um, you know, just let them all in. Right. There, there's got to be. I mean, the numbers are just incredible and there's got to be some way to process them. So Biden, you know, may look like he's being as hardline as Trump. You know, in terms of the numbers that can come in lawfully, they may not end up being that different than Trump, but I'm not even sure Trump's numbers were that different than Obama's. You know, I think it's just um, it's really just more about the the um, how humanely people will be treated in the process and about some of the um, performative aspects of, of looking tough. I think the kind of baseline numbers um, who, who can get, be, be, be granted asylum um, and the baseline numbers who will actually be deported. Um, may, may not may not be that different from the Biden administration, the Trump administration, as I believe they were not that different from the Trump administration to the Obama administration. What about on those specific new rules coming out? Right. So the, the two we kind of want to I was curious about focusing on one, obviously, is and that was 
a Trump desired policy that he was not able to eventually get implemented, which was if you pass through a country with an asylum process and you then arrive at the border, you're going to be rejected that uh, uh, asylum process. And the second one, and this is the one where the ACLU took issue, which was the Biden administration uh, shrinking the amount of time that asylum seekers had for finding and or consulting uh, with a lawyer from 48 hours to 24 hours before you had to appear in court. And that's, I think, where he's been getting, at least in my view, his flack from the left. So, I mean, again, obviously yeah. you're, you flank Biden on the left. So, yeah, yeah. So, so do you kind of agree with the ACLU and others on this front? Or do you think, look, it may look like Trump kind of, as you were saying, but it's still in kind of a necessary step yeah. as a result of the, just the, as you're noting, the pure right. numbers of individuals who come in. Yeah, I think it's necessary. I mean, on the first rule that you talked about um, where uh, seekers from countries like like Haiti or Venezuela or Nicaragua that, that come through Mexico, um, they they will now be required to show that they applied to those countries like Mexico. Um, if they if they applied and were rejected, um, they are still eligible to apply in the U.S. So it's not um, it, it's not that um, anybody who comes through Mexico is automatically excluded from a right. asylum yeah. here. Yeah, they, 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 but, but if they didn't even try to get in another country, I think that's a reasonable step. I think I support it. Uh, you know, it is going to mean that a lot of the asylum seekers are, are going to lose their eligibility. Um, but I think if, if the concept is that they need to get out of a certain country they're living in because they're, they have a credible fear of uh, political or religious persecution or, or human trafficking or one of the grounds that are, that are stated in our statute, well, if they get into a different country where they could be free from that reasonable th- fear, then, you know, that that, that should be adequate. Um, so we, I think we can't take them all. And, you know, I, I favor pretty liberal uh, numbers. I, I would like to take more of them than we are taking. But I, you know, the, 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 to, to actually just open the door to two, three, four million people, um, I, I don't see how it's possible. So I think there has to be some some culling process. This is obviously one of those weird places where we off, we end up, you're a little more maybe conservative. You would take them all, Trey? I would yeah. take at least more. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I would too. I, I, I would, would take make more. that yeah. process. But yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I often, you know, this is where kind of maybe my economic side of my policy ends up influencing my uh, thought on immigration, which is to say, these individuals aren't going to start going away right. because of our, our of our border protection policies. They're going yeah. to keep trying to come in because of the push and the flow of the economics of what's happening. And we take a look at some, many of the stories of these individuals. They're in desperate economic straits in Venezuela, for example. And so even if they don't have these asylum claims, it's not as if they're going to stop seeking that ability to enter into the United States. And so while I understand yeah. that the, I think the, the, the framework for many today is kind of that zero sum game yeah. on our side of the border. No, I, I agree I, with you. I would take a lot more. I mean, in fact, one of the reasons that our, our economy right now is experiencing so much um, in inflation and so many jobs are going unfilled is because we've been keeping out too many immigrants. Exactly. I'm glad you yeah, said it. I was yeah, going to yeah, get there. Yeah, I think yeah, we yeah, agree. Yeah, yeah, we agree on that. I mean, we need we need a lot more immigrants. I, I need to I need to like get some some work done on my on my roof, and it's impossible. You know, and uh, um, you know, there's no way I can do it unless I replace the whole roof. There's nobody who will do a small job like that in today's economy. And uh, um, yeah, I mean, that's that is a direct consequence of our our, our way too tight uh, immigration policy, and we we could definitely use more, more immigrants. I think four million is pretty tough to assimilate if that's the number it would get up to. Um, I I don't know, you know, like I, I, 
you know, one thing that we could maybe try to do is have more, um, you know, in, in back in the uh, 100 years ago, the, the numbers of immigrants that can be taken would be linked to whether um, uh, American citizens would um, step up and vouch uh, to make sure that the, this person, you know, could have housing or could be fed. And then if they had a, a sponsor or a guarantor in the United States, and sometimes you had, you know, religious groups or aid organizations that would take certain numbers, um, that might make it more feasible. And I think we should have more liberal use of programs like that. You know, if you even look at what's happening now where, you know, there's all these people at the border, some of them, you know, the governors of Texas and Florida are sending them in buses off to Chicago and things like that. But and, even if you yeah. kind of put aside the theatrics of it, yeah, I mean, yeah. you do have, what, five different counties in Texas that have now declared states of emergency yeah. as a result of just the number of individuals trying to do potentially the right thing and hang out right, right there. Right there. But, yeah, there's just no system in place that we have for... Um, for housing them, for feeding them, for uh, finding ways that they can um, support themselves since, you know, they typically can't work while they're in that status. And uh, I, I think the numbers are overwhelming, but I also think that there's a huge difference between uh, taking very low numbers of immigrants or only taking immigrants that have bona fide asylum claims. I think that's too stringent. I think we need to take a lot more. But I just I think the line's got to be drawn maybe somewhere. But, you know, if you open that up, you fix some of those problems because then you don't have individuals sitting there. You yeah. You're not trying to police everyone in that same way. Uh, so, so I've always thought, like, if we just focus potentially on saying now, this almost sounds Trumpian, but I mean it in an honest way yeah, yeah. as opposed to his way is to say, OK, look, let's really just try to screen individuals who have criminal ties or who have, you know, we, we could set up those kinds. And if you just focus all your efforts on that, yeah. <laughs> as opposed to screening everybody yeah. in that kind of sense, I, I think you'd have a better. Well, I, I, I agree, but I, I, I really do agree with you. I just think that, um, you know, you look at right now, these buses of migrants that are winding up in Chicago and they they go to the local police station because they've got nowhere else to go. And they're 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 sleeping, you know, so much in the in the just the waiting rooms and hallways of the police stations that that, that people can't even get in to report a crime and yeah. things like that. And, you know, there's a lot of t tableaus like that that are, are, are being played out, uh, you know, mostly in the border areas, but also now in some of these other areas that, that, that migrants are being sent to where we, we, we just I think we can't process it fast enough. And uh, and, and if we would have had a more rational policy all along and we could have been metering out uh, the pace by which they come in, we, we could have a lot more. And we have an extreme shortage of immigrants right now. And again, that's why we don't have enough um, people working the kind of unskilled jobs that right. our economy really runs on. We need more. Um, but, 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 but yeah, we, we don't need a humanitarian crisis that would ensue from just, you know, and, you know, OK, the doors open, millions of people can come in. So. I think Biden's trying to take some some reasonable steps. Another couple things he's done, you know, maybe more low key. He's he's set up this um, Customs and Border Patrol phone app, and yes. people can you know can actually schedule appointments to to request asylum. Um, and I think some you know something like that will just make the system run a lot more smoothly. Um, he has opened up for uh, at least for thirty thousand Haitians, Venezuelans, Nicaraguans, and Cubans per month that um, if they have U.S. sponsors. Then they can just apply for what these humanitarian parole and they can mm -hmm. come in. And I think those numbers could be higher. Um, he's certainly been trying as much as Congress will let him to expand the number of um, uh, immigration judges and asylum officers so they can actually start processing this backlog. Um, and he's deployed 1,500 active duty military personnel to the border to, to actually help the Border Patrol process paperwork, yeah. you know, not yeah. just to patrol people, but to paperwork. 
Well, and now, and so this kind of brings us, I think, maybe to the second half, or maybe maybe it's not even a whole half, but another portion of this, which is, well, of course, this is this isn't taking place in a vacuum. This is an issue that is central to any Republican nominees uh, uh, go. And you know, one of the things that we had analyzed and looked at, uh, you know, almost a year ago now, was some of the unusual voting patterns in different locations, you know, and yeah. where that was. And one of the things that we had seen and talked about was, uh, you know, turned blue versus red in certain parts of Texas did not follow what everybody might have imagined. Right. And so it, it, it's hard not to help to think about this as not just a policy problem that it is, but of course, Biden has a politics problem since that, you know, he, he would surely not love to not have the ACLU, you know, right, right. criticizing him on the one hand. But on the other hand, as you're maybe pointing out here, is to say, but here is this border crisis that these communities are dealing with. And whether it's rightful or wrongful as the result of what Congress is happening is experiencing these kinds of problems. And they're probably going to blame him. Oh, yeah. they're, going to blame, they're going to blame Democrats for that, for not having that kind of enforcement. So he, he, you know, here he is, right? Is, is this not, I mean, this doesn't seem to bode well for him, especially right now. I mean, it's expiring right now, just so there's enough time to ramp up as you're coming into an election. And again, we're going to talk a little bit later. And that was one of the, the points that Donald Trump is obviously going to make again yeah. and did last uh, uh, on Wednesday night. So how do you thread that needle as well? I mean, obviously, I mean, we can both sit here and talk yeah. about, you know, here's the kind of the optimal policy, but nobody's electing me. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I don't have to worry about the ACLU on the one hand. Versus, you know, my challenger from the Republican Party on the other. Well, yeah, we're not right up to the election yet. And I think there is some time for his policies to, to work. I mean, I think the proof will be in the pudding a little bit. And oh, so you really think some of this can maybe play out that quickly? We're talking about um, uh, a, a year, you know, before we're in, you know, really in the uh, serious uh, election time. I yeah. Yeah. And, and I, think, I think this will help uh, ease the crisis at the border, right? So I think if, if these policies go into effect, and, you know, they, they process the cases, they help, you know, get some of these people into Mexico and, and they don't want to come here anymore. Um, they, 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 they um, you know, keep the paper moving. They, they, if, they, if people get deported, it happens in a more humane way. Um, more people are going to be able to come in. Uh, you know, I, I think it's possible that we'll see a, 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 that these will be productive policies so that the, the sense of crisis that people are feeling on the border won't be as acute uh, a year from now. So I think okay. that from politically... The other part of the, you know, when you talked about the Texas voting patterns, I mean, I think the main thing you were talking about there really was that some of the all Hispanic areas uh, in, along the border, where traditionally they would not have voted for somebody like Trump, who was, you know, a, basically an anti-Hispanic racist, you know, but he but he picked up a, a lot of votes, like a lot of votes. Oh, yeah, 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 a lot of votes. Incredible amount of votes. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it was the biggest so... shift of any place in the country, yeah. I think. And so, you know, I think, you know, maybe Biden, you know, can can, you know, at least bring some of those areas back into play. Now, I wouldn't think he's going to, you know, win Texas, but I, but well, I think he, right. yeah, but, yeah. but again, I do. I, having looked at it, we talked about it. And then I actually work. There's a firm that we do some stuff with with, uh, with our school. They actually spent a lot of time analyzing it. And it, it does seem like it might be an area that helps us understand some of these changing voting behaviors more widely. But anyway, yeah. you're right. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not maybe quite, you know, normally I'm the more optimistic one. <laughs> I don't think I'm as optimistic as you in terms of I'm not sure that it's likely, I mean, again, taking it in the good faith that it's going to work well. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's enough, given we've historically seen from pres his presidents yeah. to have those 
policies have the ameliorating effects, especially, and I guess part of it's a little bit of speculation on the fact, as you had noted in the introductory, uh, your response to the introductory remarks, that there does kind of appear to be this lower down to say, okay, I need to be here right now because it's shifting over, it's shifting back. Yeah. It may be a misconception of that, but nevertheless, I don't think that goes away quite as quickly, even if all of these policies work. So again, taking it as the best possible read, you know, I would be a little nervous. I, I would be more yeah. nervous than you are if I was advising President uh, Biden that this is going to at yeah. the right moment for elections. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, you could be right about that, but I don't, I don't know that any alternative would be... Well, and that's fair. I mean, yeah, that's another, yeah. right, yeah, fair, fair. Yeah. Uh, okay, I'm sorry, you were oh, saying something oh, else I was, there. Yeah, I was, I was also going to say, I, I think, um, you know, that, that the, um, well, no, I, I think, yeah, just that, that I, <laughs> if, if he did nothing at all, oh, no, no, now I remember, I'm sorry, I was going to talk about Congress's role in this, too, because, um, you know, the, the Republicans are going to have a little bit of a, a, a political tough spot on this issue, because... Biden is certainly going to be asking for a lot more funding for a lot more immigration judges, for a lot more asylum officers, for a lot more border patrol. And in fact, he has already been able to get big increases in the funding for border patrol. But I think the Republicans will be maybe a little bit stuck by that in between their their desire to see him fail, which would make them think, well, we're not going to give him that funding to make sure that he fails. But then they would have to take votes not to fund, you know, the border control. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, so I think there, there's some up political upsides there in, in Biden getting getting tough here and demanding that Congress fund more activity there. No, and, and that has long, at least since the Trump era, been kind of the weird, the weird accounting, right? So, you know, again, this is this is one where I fall weirdly. So, you know, take it for everything anybody wants to think about it. Right. But Republicans certainly uh, on this particular issue, especially. You know, they always want to point towards the numbers of individuals who have been grabbed as being higher as some kind of ne- negative for Biden. Yeah. But of course, if you don't want people at the border, don't you want them yeah. to be caught? Right. You know, you'd want the numbers <laughs> yeah. to go up. Uh, but I, get, I mean, the, the implicit assumption seems to be, well, if you're strong enough, you'd kind of scare them away. Right. Yeah. They would like see the border wall at a distance and be like, well, I'm not even going to try. Right, so, right. Yeah. Um, uh, but no, I think you're right in terms of the votes. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think Republicans have to do that, uh, given where they already stand. Um, yeah, so I, yeah, it, it's 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 going to be. But the other piece that's here weird, and you, I, I thought you might bring this up, so I'll bring it up a little bit, is just to say that it's unusual because you have some Republicans who would really like to see them stay under the pandemic era rule at least a little bit longer. And there's been some criticism for that, but of course. Which is a weird, the you go, there shouldn't yeah, be a pandemic, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's a bit of a weird space there on that front yeah, as well. I, and, and, and likewise, you, know, you had some Democrats who were like, this issue has really kind of, both parties have had to push a little bit in ways they don't normally want to give. Well, yeah, I mean, Trump opportunistically used the pandemic to shift to different um, immigration policies that he wanted to shift to anyhow, I guess. Right. So I, I don't know that he was really that it was really based on the public health, his concern about the public health. But he but he had that he had that ability to make a public health order to do that. Um, but, yeah, it is it is a lot of the uh, I guess there's a bill that was um, introduced. I don't know if it's going to go anywhere, but I think Senator Cinema and Senator Tillis introduced a bill today or yesterday to um, 
change the the Title Eight rules uh, into the Title Forty Two rules, basically, so that oh. so that if we th- th- those rules that we had during the pandemic would just become the permanent rules, yeah. and it wouldn't matter about a, a, a pandemic anymore. So the last kind of piece of this before we move forward is to say, I mean, the last kind of position here where I think Biden could see some pushback is effectively right. I mean, this happened yesterday, and we also got the rules about this yesterday. That I mean, that does that doesn't scream optimism when it comes to your 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 policy making necessarily do you see that as a problem too you know again you might one might have expected i mean this has been coming you yeah. know why wouldn't these rules be proclamated say even just a month ago well they they um i think they had to get them out by by yesterday because the public health order was expiring well, right, right yeah, i'm saying yeah, i mean, yeah. I mean you're, that's the that's the 11th there was ever the 11th hour, hour yeah. there's yeah. the 11th hour yeah, I guess they just uh, had a hard time setting what the policy was going to be, and they had they worked right up until the death. Was. Yeah, I mean, again, that's been some of the push to say, like, yeah. you had to see this coming. Why yeah. not sooner so that you have some clarity to potentially give some clarity to these individuals who are now already sitting there? Yeah, I mean, it would have been better to get it done earlier, but it also, um, you know, it, it, I guess if they were, you know, considering if people kept coming in saying, well, you got to consider this, you got to consider that. Yeah. You know, I guess they had to consider all the things they had to consider. It's uh, it's hard for me to know, you know, in this case in particular, but really with any administrative agency, you know, what kind of what kind of obstacles they run into to getting things done. It's a it, there's a lot of people working on these rulemakings. Right? right. And there's a lot of issues that could come in and there's. You know, there's sometimes things that the staff in the agencies will come up with that then the, the, the political heads of the agencies won't, won't like and will send them back to the drawing board. And so um, the administrative process is not a quick one. And, uh, you know, it's good that they at least got something done <laughs> by the time the other <laughs> no, no, expired. Yeah. Yeah. I, know, yeah. I guess, you know, they kind of felt like you, you have those students who are like, the, the deadline is 1130. So yeah. I, I can get in at, a, you know, 1129. Right? Yeah. It felt a little bit like that student. Well, I think these but... guys did much better job being timely than I expect Congress is going to do on the debt ceiling. <laughs> Well, we're yeah, going to get yeah, to yeah, well, yeah. Well, we'll do that yeah, a, different yeah, day. a different day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, but see, you know, Congress is incentivized to do that, but we'll get yeah. to that. To, to wait till the end. Yeah, yeah. 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 So why don't we uh, let's uh, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the defamation suit, right? So earlier this week, you know, the big thing uh, on Monday was a jury finding Donald, Donald Trump civilly liable uh, for sexually abusing uh, Eugene Carroll and defaming her during his denial of those allegations in 2019. Uh, Carol called it, quote, a victory not just for me, but for every woman who has suffered because she, what she was not believed, end quote. Uh, meanwhile, on Truth Social, uh, Trump yelled in his traditional all cap that the verdict was a disgrace and went on to say, quote, I have absolutely no idea who this woman is, end quote. Uh, Trump's team uh, had said that he would appeal to the decision. Uh, he also talked about it during his CNN town hall, but I'd like to kind of save that because yeah. we're going to talk about that town hall, uh, you know, and focus it a little bit more here. Um, Trump, although he has claimed earlier uh, last at the end of last week uh, that it was a travesty that he couldn't appear in court, he actually refused to appear in court, um, which this is kind of important to recognize uh, in a civil case that can be used against you, right? So yep. in, a, in a criminal case, you taking the stand or not taking the stand can't be any of the evidence towards you. But in a civil suit, your, your inability to, or your unwilling uh, uh, to come forward can be called to the jury to say, look, this person's not willing to actually answer these charges. It, it, it can be held in that. Uh, and, and he didn't. Instead, uh, he uh, sent in his videotape deposition under oath 
in which he accused Carol uh, and her story as being ridiculous and disgusting, end quote. Um, so in this case, what ends up happening is, is that we have the preponderance of evidence. And this is something I think a lot of times news outlets miss, right? You know, in a criminal case, you have very standards of being found guilty. It's different than being found Beyond liable. a reasonable doubt. Exactly. <laughs> as opposed to just the preponderance of evidence. And so in this case, with this uh, preponderance of evidence, not that he raped her, which is another... F- well, no, that's something we can talk about potentially yeah. because it's not that much further of a take from what he gets found severely right, liable right. for. Uh, but he does get found uh, liable for engaging in forced sexual contact uh, with Carol. Uh, again, falling short of that rape, uh, and then, of course, for uh, 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 defaming her thereafter as well. Um, and so really the only kind of key difference there is just uh, potentially the intercourse a- a action of it. So what do you think about this? I mean, there's a lot of different angles we could take, so can I, I'll, I'll leave it there for you to start yeah. thread, and I'll come along. There's sort, of the, there's sort of the trial law angle, and then there's the political angle, I yeah, guess. But yeah, the, let's start with the trial, trial law. Part of it, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I think he, of all defendants who've ever been sued in these Me Too-type cases, uh, he made it the easiest for the plaintiff to win. You know? <laughs> I mean, there, there's, there's very few that have uh, already you know, been seen on national television talking about how much they like to engage in this kind of conduct. And then, and then, um, well, it's, it's yeah. happened for a million years. Yeah, for a million years, as he yeah. said. And then, who doubled down on it in the deposition and doesn't? That was the thing. Like, he, there's the excess Hollywood tape. And then, when he's deposed about it, he says, "Well, fortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, but possibly fortunately, in my just, case, in my case, that's just the way it is." Yeah. You know. So he he didn't really, um, you know, try to explain away that excess Hollywood tape as as out of context or anything. He just doubled down that that's his attitude. And then his decision not to testify. You know, the, the, the plaintiff's lawyer made such good use of that because the plaintiff's lawyer said in the closing argument, you know, this isn't really even a he said, she said case. This is just a she said case. And he's he won't look you in the eye and say the opposite. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's a great yeah. rhetorical device. It's, yeah. And, and when I saw that, I, I knew she's going to win. In fact, I, I was like, well, this jury won't even be out overnight. And uh, and they weren't. It was yeah. barely three hours. Yeah, barely three hours. Yeah, and and they and it took the morning for them to be instructed by the judge. So <laughs> it was. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's. Uh, um, yeah, I, I think. And his appeal's going nowhere. He did already file it, but there's there's basically no grounds. In fact, the one ground I first thought he might have, but now I don't think he even has that. Um, is just about where they came up with the number five million, and I was kind of thinking that even if he did it. Um, you know, that, that, that dollar number, it wasn't really super clear to me where it came from. But when I, when I looked closer at the trial transcripts, and of course, you couldn't watch this trial on TV. It was a federal trial. Right. Um, but uh, the, the trial transcripts, they did put on some evidence about a few things. They, they put on evidence from, a, um, expert, from a public relations expert about how much money you'd have to pay a publicist um, to be able to restore the amount of uh, uh, harm to reputation that was caused. And so, you know, no matter how much I think maybe personally that kind of evidence, I'm not sure how much I credit it. But, but if, the, if the jury credited it, then there's an evidentiary basis there um, for, for, for the judgment that they gave. And they actually bifurcated that dollar amount between um, about half of it was for the defamation and the cost of restoring uh, reputation. And about half of it was just for the, the harm that was caused to her by being sexually abused. So that was really independent of the defamation. And and I think I think the jury's valuation on that stuff will stand up. I would have thought that would have maybe been the most vulnerable. And actually, I would have thought Trump's lawyers, if they were po- possibly a little better, they could have fought a little harder to, to I think the argument would have been available to them to make 
her, she really didn't suffer any harm to her reputation because Trump saying all these lies about her actually kind of made her a hero in some quarters and made her able to sell books. And, and her reputation maybe, you know, isn't really harmed at all by any of this. But they, they really didn't advance those kind of arguments the way I think they might have. Well, I'm glad you take that on. But the, the, the other piece that's weird for me, and this is where I was curious, this is where I'm kind of outside, I can see it, but I'm outside my wheelhouse, which is his now comments in the wake of it seem like that could be evidence against him, right? I mean, yeah. So he's yeah. doubling down saying, I don't know who she is, even though that's now been established that... And, and he's photographed. Yeah, we're there right now. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, uh, simultaneously making... Uh, again, it's one thing to make lies in kind of a broader political context. It's another to say, I, I, they wouldn't let me show up, yeah. right? Uh, and, and to be kind of hanging on that, especially if you're going to then... I mean, if you're not going to file an appeal, I guess it doesn't really matter. Yeah. But when you're filing an appeal, can't that those evidences be used against you in the appeal to basically say, uh, no, or am the, I wrong about that? No, they can't. Um, that's not right. The, the, the appeal will be on a closed record. So the record is the record of uh, what was admitted at trial. So only that can be only used. Only that can be that. used. Yeah. So more like a like like we'd be used to in like a criminal trial, for example. Yeah, yeah. The, so the, there's a process in a trial where evidence gets admitted into evidence, and uh, and lawyers can object, and some things don't get admitted right. into evidence. But um, the, the 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 appeal will look only well. There's really two universes of things they can look at. They can look at everything that was admitted into evidence. And if there were things that the judge didn't admit into evidence, but there was an objection to that decision, they can review whether whether those uh, ob objections were were well grounded and the judge was wrong not to admit something mm -hmm. into evidence. But things that come later uh, um, are not part of the appeal. Although if the appeal results in a in a remand, um, I don't think that'll happen. I think this appeal is just going to result in the trial judge's order being affirmed. But, but, it, but if, if, if the appeals court decides that the trial judge made some errors of law um, and orders a, a new trial, um, then at that new trial, some of this stuff could come in. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And wondered about that. Okay, well, so... But, but, but uh, before we leave it... But no, I don't could, want to leave you. She, yeah, she, yeah. she could sue him again for more defamation. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's another thing. Um, I don't know if she'll want to go through that again. And some of the stuff, you know, he's, I guess, entitled to his opinion about whether the jury got it right or wrong. But, but as, you, as you pointed out, some stuff he's saying, um, like, like that he's never met her, I think that could be defamatory because... Not only did the jury find that he did, but, um, you know, there's photographs there, too. Right. So, um, yeah, or his... Well, even said, more yeah, than yeah, that, yeah, I mean, yeah, the jury yeah. found that he, 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 he was in... He was in yeah, 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 you can't meet them, then yeah. you can't sexually... Yeah, yeah, I mean, I guess it's an interesting question whether it's inherently defamatory for someone to say, the jury found this, but they're wrong. I, I think it, it's possible to say that, but... but um, and I think she would have to, um, you know, show that... Um, He's got some um, kind of reckless disregard for the truth here, you know, not just that he's mistaken, um, but but it but it would it would be possible that she could she could sue him again. So like we did with Biden, let's let's pivot a little bit to the politics and say, does this matter? I mean, I, I, I'm, my short version is easy. No. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I don't see. I'm not really sure if there's anything that can happen in the short term that right. fundamentally changes. I mean, Trump is a known entity. Yeah. I, I mean, whether you think that's a positive or negative, he's a known entity, he is what he is. He's always come with this baggage. He still has this baggage. D does this change anything at all? Again, I, my thought is quick. It's no. Do you have any yeah. different thoughts? 
But... 5% different, 95% the same. Okay. Yeah, so so I, I think you're right. It can't really affect his path to the Republican nomination because it's already mm-hmm. baked in to all the Republican voters who are going to vote for him to be the nominee. I think it, it. I think he had very little chance in a general election even before this, but I think he has even less chance in a general election yeah. now. I, I think there are some, um, uh, you know, peeps. He, his his vote in the general election is not only Republicans. There are some independents who also had to vote for him, and uh, I think his his the numbers of independents who he can get to vote for him is definitely going to yeah. go down. Well, I want to talk more about that, but let's let's yeah, pivot sure. a little bit because the third thing we want to talk about was going to kind of help us lead into that, and that's Wednesday night's uh, uh, Trump town hall. Now, we were actually even talking about this earlier with uh, Mike. So yeah. before, you know, before we did the show, I got to see uh, Northern Kentucky University again, and so we were walking around. We were all waiting for the show and chatting. Uh, you, know, my, you know, Mike thinks that it's a lot more likely that, that, uh, that Trump wins, but I want to get to that. Um, but on uh, Wednesday, we, we were talking about the fact that you guys were having trouble even thinking about it. You know, watch, Michael it. and I both didn't watch it. Yeah. You were the only brave yeah. one who actually watched it. So I it. actually watched it, and then I, I did. I listened uh, even to kind of the uh, conservative radio to kind of get that and that appeal to go as well. Now, I think the first thing that's weird about this, of course, is it's CNN, right? When you kind of traditionally think about at least broadcast media, uh, you know, kind of the, the, the pillars are Fox News on the right. You have CNN on the left. And and then everybody else in between, <laughs> effectively. Uh, and so Trump coming back to CNN, I mean, obviously, it's weird from the point of view of, of CNN. Uh, and we can talk about that. But it's also unusual from the point of view of Trump in a way. Right. So this signals a slightly for me, though, a different target. I, I was thinking about this when you were talking about his broader electability. Right. So clearly he goes on on CNN, maybe to take a shot at Fox in the wake of some of the you know, he's, he's obviously had some issues there. Um, but maybe this is also a way of trying to have a wider potential appeal. He is doing that first. Um, now, I know why it's, it's, it's uncomfortable to watch. It can be uncomfortable to watch. I do think those town hall, I think this one encapsulates why people like him. I do. And, and supporters and independents in that room alike, man, they are just, they were eating him up uh, because he is this kind of made for TV soundbite. Now, again, when you look at him as a totality like we do, you know, it's, it's hard not to be like, you know, there, there, there's, it, it's almost like reading a bunch of non related snippets. Um, but really the way he, the best way I could, I've ever thought about how he talks and this, it just, the town hall was this was, it's like he's tweeting all the time, but of course, doesn't that kind of work in a world where that's what we're getting? We're getting those little teeny sound bites. I mean, I don't know if he's doing it on purpose or if it's just because of the way he is happens to overlap with the way the meet. I've often wondered that, but I, I saw that again, uh, on Wednesday. And I mean, again, there's lots of different snippets that we can talk about because there's so many of them that's the way he communicates uh but some of the ones we might want to get to i I, one of the ones that uh, that uh, stood out to me was he comes out really hard against mike pence right you know he he gets asked point blank you know is is jan six something that he needs to apologize uh uh, for and his answer is no he replies because mike pence didn't do what he was supposed to do right and they're and they have this exchange back and forth on that front as a matter of fact he would later on then argue that he would be quote inclined to pardon many of the defendants um and really on this front you know one of the things i'm curious about we'll talk about maybe a little bit more as we think about the nominee 
looks like Pence is getting ready to run into, you know, jump into this race. I mean, he, he went all the way to that line earlier in the week. I think he was just waiting for the end of the town hall, but I think he's waited too long in some ways. He just keeps letting Trump pounce on him. Um, I think it might be too late. That's one thing we can talk about. But of course, you know, we are also talking about the uh, decision. He went on to uh, belittle uh, uh, Carol additionally in the town hall. Uh, he, uh, uh, as a matter of fact, he, he called her, uh, her, oh my goodness, losing that. But he did call out on Carol. Nasty woman. No, that's, that's what he called the interviewer. The interviewer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He was calling her. I can't, I did not leave the quote here for what he was uh, saying, but it was just nasty. Something, uh, the nasty was the interviewer. They're they're both standing there Uh and she's kind of getting jeered by the crowd. And he's like, if you let me just finish, you're just kind of a nasty woman, aren't you? Um, so, uh, you know, another, the only other person besides Spence and Carol that he calls out specifically is, is of course, Ron DeSantis, uh, saying that his future quote is not looking good in quote DeSantis, his, uh, uh, pack attempt to hit back. Nobody really seemed to care that really on it. You know, nobody was talking about that there. The only other item that, that, you know, as I was going through and kind of taking notes that really stuck out to me, I don't know if you, in the aftermath you read anything about this, was his, I would call it a waffle on abortion, uh, right? You know, he really, you know, he stands, he's like, yeah, I'm the reason that we have Dobbs, you should love me for this. Uh, but he falls really far short of what I think, well, I don't think, I, mean, I, I have been inundated with it recently. You know, the new pro-life desire is to have a national law on that front. And he would not take that stance. Instead, he argues that he wouldn't agree to a ban and instead said he would, quote, make a deal, end quote, which that seems unusual for Trump in the sense is that's more maybe a much wider audience uh, hit. You know, that, that, that's coming after potentially maybe women in a way, which is ironic given the rest of his interview. But I mean, you know, uh, well, he, he, he doesn't take that step that you might have assumed he otherwise would. So there's at least three things that I sound by I don't call Trump snippets, let's call it that, yeah. that I had noticed as I was listening through. Yeah, so the, the abortion thing was after the town hall, right? That wasn't in the town that hall? Was in the town that was in the town hall. That was in the town hall. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. So, um, yeah, I'd read about it. And again, I didn't watch the town hall. I did read a fair amount of coverage of it, and I, I read about all the things that, that you mentioned. Um, so sort of starting with CNN, I guess your first thing was yeah. about his... Um, yeah, is he's trying to do outreach to a different audience? Uh, that would not be my read on why he went to CNN. I, I I do agree with part of what you said is that it was a it was to throw some shade on Fox. Right? Yeah. That, that Fox hasn't been um, uh, featuring him as much. They've really kind of made him a bit of a persona non grata since they had all their troubles with Dominion and all that. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, um, and so I think he was trying to throw some shade on them by finding somewhere else he could go. But I think that you know in in the in the um, in the kind of theater that he has set up in, in the drama that he's trying to play out for his followers, CNN is, is the enemy. It's, it's the Clinton News Network, right? Yeah. And, and, and he's, not, he's not going there to um, try to reach out to the CNN people. He's going there to show all the Trumpers that he can go over there and beat them up and dominate them. You know, I think that's the, that's the theater that's being played out here. Okay. So, so I think it's, it's um, kind of successful um, for the audience that it's directed to, but I don't think that's CNN's audience. And I think he kind of lucked out a little bit that CNN had, um, you know, they'd recently hired this new, I'm not sure if he's the CEO or if he's just the head of their news operations, this guy called Chris Licht, who, mm. who was hired with the, the, the specific marching orders of like, um, you know, CNN's business model depends on, you know, a broader cut of Americans watching it than just liberals. 
So we, we need to we need to find a way back to getting, you know, being having a broader viewership. And and that's like Licht's new marching orders. And so I think Licht is thinking, well, if if we put on a, a Trump town hall, you know, then then we can have some outreach and bring in some of the 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 the, the, the conservative viewers, especially the ones that may be a little disaffected Fox right now. Right. So so I think he, you know, for CNN, like that was kind of their goal. And 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 I think they ended up, you know, you know, bargaining, making deals with Trump they shouldn't have made. Like you, you mentioned the audience being so much on his side. I mean, well, not only were they handpicked to be on his side and, and not to be an audience full of people that would be antagonistic to him, but then they're actually given rules. They were allowed to cheer, but they weren't allowed to boo. And that was part of the rules of, of being in that audience, right? So you, you wind up with basically a, 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 a televised campaign rally, you know, and intentionally so, and, and not, not a true... Um, town hall in the sense where you have a, a, a broad cut of, of people there, but just basically, you know, Trump supporters or, you know, maybe some other conservatives and Republicans who wouldn't necessarily think of themselves as Trump supporters first, but, but nobody there who's really anti-Trump and they have these rules you can cheer, but you can't boo. And, and I think that that ends up, you know, creating an impression um, that, you know, that his viewers would take a lot, of, his voters will take a lot of heart from and think, this is awesome. He went in there, he beat up on liberal CNN, and the audience loved it. You know, yeah. that's awesome. But, but I think that's not, uh, I don't think that's playing uh, uh, to, to make him more popular with other, other audiences who weren't already in his camp. So I, I think over time, it's going to be a net negative. It may have seemed like a net positive for him in the moment, but um, what hmm. it also produced is a lot of clips that are going to, um, you know, be shown to a lot of people who didn't watch that event. And uh, like me, you know, I'm sure I'm going to be seeing some of that stuff in ads. And I think those ads are mostly going to play more, more negatively for him in the long run. That's interesting. Okay, so we do have that. That's an area where I think we have a little bit of difference. I, I think it helps. Yeah. I, I do. And I, I think, you know, when you take a look at the literature on media, uh, you know, the, the media environment is the political environment. And so when you talk about those kinds of images and, uh, 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 I mean, A, you have a singular individual who obviously controls the narrative as I'm the candidate, right? I mean, that's one of the things that is symbolically happening here. I think that helps him, especially that, now that primarily in the, in, in the, the primary. primary. Yeah. But I think on the front of him being, you know, it doesn't have, there doesn't have to be underlying truth, but when's the last time that say Biden would have been on something on Fox news to have that kind of, as you kind of put it, to take it to, you know, right. to, to, to go into the other side's territory. I, I, I think that actually net him an appeal. And I think it feeds into the narrative that he has successfully, among many, has built up around himself, which is to say, I'm the action guy. I'm the guy who fights, right? Yeah. I kind of curse and say bad words, but that's part of who I am, right? I, I'm the guy who sexually assaults somebody, but it's that same energy that makes me a great president. Now, please, I mean, I'm, I'm saying that. I don't yeah. want anybody to take that out of context, but that's the way I think he is portraying himself. Well, I, I, that's not me. I'm not trying to say it's a good thing. I, I agree with you there, and I also agree with you that it'll, it'll help him in the Republican primary. In fact, I think he's consolidating position as basically the only candidate who's really in the Republican primary. But 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 I, I just think the same things that that helps him with in the with the Republicans, it, it hurts him with everybody else who's not a Republican. And, and he can't um, he can't win, you know, if, if all he has is the Trumpers and some of the other Republicans. He already lost in uh, in 2020 and, and he um, isn't, you know, making any he isn't doing himself any favors 
with all the voters who, who voted against him in 2020 with all these kind of antics. Well, that's what we, we wanted to finish on a little bit here uh, on this topic anyway, which was, you know, what is it looking like in the general election? So let's get at that question, because I yeah. actually did a little bit of that, right? So this past week, one of the things that comes up. So last week, Jay and Mike talked about Biden throwing his hat in the ring. Um, and so obviously, we now have some different kinds of polling. Well, our first kind of big poll off the week after that is the ABC Washington Post poll, which shows Trump leading by six points. And that's prior, of course, to the uh, uh, town hall. You go back a little bit earlier where you just have prospective Biden running. Uh, you have Trump up five in the Harvard uh, Harris poll. Even the Economist and YouGov poll has them tied uh, uh, currently. And so the big takeaway when you look at some of those numbers seems to be it's a combination of Trump has a slightly bigger amount of support than I think was expected. And combined with Biden has a lot less support than I think. Yeah. Has been. Now, that's something we've already talked about. He's going to ha- he he has an uphill battle and the midterm maybe seem to be evidence to the contrary. But polling for him hasn't shifted in the wake of that midterm election, which makes us kind of wonder. So what, what's your yeah. take on that? I mean, I know what you're saying is like, look, this isn't going to help Trump. Yeah. But the starting point, at least right now, seems to be he's in a relatively poll. Well, Biden's going to sail to victory in, 2020, uh, in 2024 if, if the opponent is Trump, as it looks like it will be. I think, I think Biden would have a lot more trouble uh, if his opponent opponent was one of the other Republicans, but I, I don't think that's who it's going to be. So you think there's something wrong with the the, the early polling here? So oh yeah, talk to us about that real briefly. Well, I mean, no, nobody's running negative ads against Trump yet, but but Trump is, um, you know, once the negative ads start running against him, he's he's you know he's much more unelectable in 24 than he was in 20, and and he didn't win in 20, and and uh, you know it was the same matchup, Biden against Trump. And that's before uh, Trump tried to plot a, a coup against the government uh, on January 6th of 21 and get impeached for it a second time. And that's before a jury found him guilty of uh, or liable for defaming and, and sexually assaulting Eugene. And he's going to have a lot more court decisions going against him in the next in the next year before before the election. And he might even be in prison before the election. And uh, um, and 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 all the things that he's saying, including on this town hall, which are, you know, there's going to be a lot of money going into this presidential campaign and there's going to be a lot of negative ads out there. And really, a lot of people who today will tell you, um, I don't think Biden's doing a good job as president. I don't have confidence in him. A lot of those people are going to vote for Biden um, if the opponent is Trump. I think Biden only really has to worry about his approval ratings. If if the candidate is someone, if the opposing candidate is someone who seems plausible um, to anybody who did vote for Biden the first time around, but I think everybody who voted for Biden the first time around, no exceptions, you know, is not going to vote for Trump this time around. What about? And this is where I, the last thing I'll kind of poke on a little bit here is to say that you, know, you are talking. I agree about the negative ads, but negative ads generally don't harm in the way we think they do. What they generally do is depress voter turnout overall. And it seems to be as voter turnout comes down that Trump does better historically. So if you have Biden, like you're saying, yeah. it's pro- you're probably right. You, you were voting for Biden last time. The likelihood that you're going to switch and vote for Trump is unlikely. But we do know in American politics, the likelihood of a particular voter turning out and voting is low. Yeah. And so we had historically high voting in 2020. It's probably not repeatable. And in an election where you have a lot of negative advertisements that are kind of already built up, and some of them, like you're saying, aren't even the ads, but the, like the nature of one of the candidates, 
that too could bring down the amount of individuals turning out. And again, oftentimes in low A, Republicans yeah. do better in low vote, uh, voter turnout. And Trump specifically seems historically to do best in those kind of low well, so I'm, I'm, not, I'm offering just kind of yeah. uh, you know, no, a little bit of a, yeah. But the, but for the problem with what you're saying is that the, the, the reason the turnout was so high in 2020 is because Trump was the candidate. And so that's gonna, if Trump's the candidate, turnout's going to be high. Right? Do you I mean, think there's a because, lot of people who want to vote against Trump. Do you uh, think it was just because he was, it was Trump or because it was Trump as the incumbent? I know that sounds weird. It's, yeah. not, it's not functionally different. I recognize yeah. that, right? But in the same way that when we ask you know, the the presentation of an issue changes the way that we, we respond to it. Yeah, I I honestly think that Trump, the candidate, get the same turnout to vote against him as Trump, the president, did. I, again, I recognize there is no functional yeah. difference between that, but I think there might actually be a pragmatic one too. Well, I, I would agree with you if we were talking about anyone other than Trump. Other than Trump. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I think if you're saying you know do, do are people more motivated to vote out an incumbent? Than, than to vote um, uh, just against someone they don't like. You know, of, of course, I would agree with you. But I think that if it's Trump, you know, the depth of feeling of most Americans of how much they hate Trump um, will, will and, and how much they fear Trump um, will, will bring them out. And, and another factor I think we haven't talked about here, besides Trump, the other thing that makes me quite positive that 2024 will be a high turnout election is because um, abortion is on the ballot. And, um, you know, you look at some of these special elections that happened recently or off year elections, like in the for the Wisconsin Supreme Court or something like that. And you're looking at some of the highest turnout elections for those kind of races ever. And I think that that um, will continue to be like a big third rail right now that um, that even, you know, even if people say, well, I I hate all these politicians, I hate Biden, I hate Trump. I'm not motivated to vote for any of them. Um, Even people like that are going to be. But I am motivated to to keep abortion legal. And that is definitely on the ballot in 2024. So I think I think we'll see another very high turnout election. And and I think that the high turnout will be specifically because most Americans want to vote against Trump. And so if he's the nominee, (laughs) that's really what it is. I hear you. I hear you. So let's pause for just a second. And then when we come back, we're going to take on uh, George Santos and a different kind of indictment. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Ken, uh, we're going to be pivoting here from Trump, obviously. Uh, Now, in another bit, in a different week, this might have been one of the bigger uh, uh, stories of the week. And that's Representative George Santos was indicted and then pled not guilty to 14 federal counts of uh, 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 wire fraud, money laundering, theft of public funds, and lying to the U.S. House all on Wednesday. Uh, And then, as a matter of fact, right as we were getting ready to go on the show uh, overseas, he ended up pleading no contest uh, to charges in Brazil uh, 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 of theft. (laughs) From when he was a teenager. Yeah, you know, I mean, just a pattern of behavior. You know, we we have talked about Santos in the past. Uh, And as we were kind of prepping for this, one of the things we were talking about and I I had been thinking about is, I don't know, maybe we need to, maybe we should get on top of this. I I, I mean this seriously. The George Santos biography might be the best book ever because I'm not sure. I'm a political scientist. This is my area. I cannot think of another candidate. I can, excuse me, I can't think of another individual who's held office. Going all the way back in fabricated everything about himself that we can tell, right? I mean, that is unique, his biography, his background. Um, 
Now, and these charges, these are not, this, this is not small stuff that we're talking about, right? The, the centerpiece of this here for listeners, of course, uh, is one of the big items here is, is fraudulently getting a, a massive amount of unemployment while making $120,000 a year as a lawyer. Uh, another one here is, of course, using campaign contributions to pay off his own personal debts or to buy things, which again, seems to be a pattern of something that goes back to Brazil, right? The, 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 the store checks, yeah. stealing checks and then buying clothes for yep. friends. Yep. Um, there's a lot of things here. And, it, and, it's, you know, and it's funny because when you hear his defense of himself, for anybody who, who pays attention like me, you can hear him trying to mimic the language of Trump. Like he, like, like, so he called it, quote, it's a witch hunt, right? We, you know, those words have kind of lost all meaning in modern American politics. But the, 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 the ethos I get from him, and I, I don't know if you get this too, is he almost feels like, did you ever have one of those situations where you had like the, the older brother and then like the younger brother and the older brother can almost kind of pull off whatever. He's doing something a little, right? But he can pull it off. He's got the gravitas to pull. And then like the little brother's coming out and he's like pulling up his pants like, which hunt, which hunt? That's kind of the feel that I have about Santos. He doesn't have any of the, the, the Trumpian gravitas. He doesn't really seem to even understand what he's saying in some ways. He's just, these are the, these, this is the incantation. That, that was really the feel I got in his press conferences. Yeah. coming out. These, this is the incantation. This is what I say. Um, but this is not small. As a matter of fact, one of the things I noticed, he got hit with a million dollar bail. Yeah. That's not small. That means you are worried that this person, a house member, is going to take off. Now, risk, yeah. as a matter of fact, that did actually happen once. We, we, are, we have a house member who ends up going overseas. I don't know. Tell me. Yeah, and in New York, there's a whole court case about it. Oh, uh, is this from the app scam trials or when is no, this no, from? no, 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 no. Uh, I'm blanking this name. I should. I thought you know, it was all honest. I, just, I didn't even. I should put it all here. Uh, look that up. Yeah, uh, he actually ends up leaving, and then uh, he's in, in New York. He's a representative in New York. And how long ago? This would have been the 1960s. Looking this up. Yeah, look that up. Um, so now. I had this little, I'm just going to call it a joke because I don't want you to get offended right at the outset. And it is a joke. But, you know, he was able to put up the half million using all of his campaign monies. Uh, (laughs) No, I tease, I tease. Um, Now, what might be unusual about this that I was curious that we could talk about a little bit. Obviously, this is unique in one way. Um, But House Republicans are not taking any additional action right now. Uh, until the court process has moved forward. Now, while nine have called for him to resign, uh, Representative Steve Scalise uh, actually said that they're going to kind of, in his words, quote, withhold judgment until the legal process happens, end quote. Uh, meanwhile, Santos has said in no uncertain terms he won't resign and is to run again. Yeah. So, what, 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 I mean, he's, he's not really running again because the New York Republicans are dumping him. So, well, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but he, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the, the reason that Scalise and particularly McCarthy uh, aren't trying to hurry him out is because they, they have such a thin majority. I mean, if they, if they push him out the door, then they're immediately one short in the majority. And if there's a special election to fill the seat, it, it's a, it's, that's one of the closest districts that could easily go Democratic. Right. So, so I think he's got that little bit of security that um, he's not going to be he's not going to be kicked out of the Congress until he's in prison. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And he could we'll be wait until that could, happens. He could be in prison before his congressional term runs out. So that'll be how he'll leave. Yeah. yeah. So what, I mean, again, it, it, unlike these other items, it, there's not a lot of, uh, I wouldn't say there's nobody's really rallying the, the wagons around him. I mean, he seems to be like a lost cause, but he can't help but do damage to the Republican Party. You know, it, I don't know. I yeah, mean, well, again, I I'm, I'm unusual in yeah. the sense that, you know, I haven't I haven't felt quite at home in the Republican Party since the Trump era. Yeah. Um, but even if even, you know, take away. Trump, it, it, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, the, New, the you know, the New York Republicans are very worried about that. And that's why those are the ones who have all, you know, immediately called for him. You know, his fellow Republican Congress members from New York are the ones in that yeah, group that are calling yeah. for him to resign in the. The New York Republican Party has already made announcements that, you know, he will not be the nominee ne- next time out. They've got other people who are going to um, take that away from him. And, you know, so I, I think they're, they're concerned about being damaged by it. You know, the, 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 the Trump Republicans, I think they, they don't mind, you know, they don't mind criminality, really. Right. And so he may have a base of support um, in, in national Republican circles, not uh, I think not not a base of electoral support that could possibly keep him in public life in New York. I mean, I think that in some ways Santos might be the example, and I was setting that up a minute ago to say that I think there are limits. I think this is a good thing, right? Obviously, limits to how effective the Trump playbook is more widely. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, so one of the things that had worried me as Trump entered the public sphere in like a meaningful way bothered me as a Republican was effectively. Well, like, we, we shouldn't be getting this guy seriously. And then when he is being serious and effective, well, is this going to be effective moving forward? And so, what I mean, do you take any solace in that fact, too? That, I mean, I mean, the only reason that he continues to sort of kind of hang out is because we have a weird house. Yeah. The he, end. He, in fact, he got it's doubly serendipitous or, uh, you know, the, he. The only reason he got in to begin with is because the New York Court of Appeals found the New York legislature's map to be unconstitutionally gerrymandered because he, he was in a district that the, when the legislature drew that district, it wasn't a competitive district. It had been gerrymandered for the Dems. So, like, really, nobody wanted to be the Republican nominee. There, was no, there were no serious candidates running for that to be the sacrificial lamb in a, in a Democratic district. And then suddenly the court at the last minute redraws the districts and it's a competitive district all of a sudden. And he's sitting and there. And he's sitting there. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if that hadn't happened, like if, if the maps would hadn't have been changed at the last minute, um, he never would have been a nominee because he never would have. Uh, the serious Republicans would have vied for that seat, but that didn't happen. So, yeah, I mean, although I would say some Republicans are playing the Trump playbook to some success. You know, you have these people like uh, Josh Hawley out there. Right. I mean, there are other Trumpers. Um, uh, you know, I, I would, I would, you know, you have Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greene, for goodness sake, and she's super popular now in some circles and seemingly pretty powerful in the House of Representatives. And Lauren Boebert, although Lauren Boebert might get dumped in a very Republican district, she came pretty close last yeah. time. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, even, even Marjorie Taylor, her, her time seems to be numbered in some ways. Uh, again, I think a lot of it has to do with the closeness of this particular House election. I don't, I don't think she gets seats back if, you know, if she's not a pivotal vote in having to make who's going to be the speaker or the speaker. Yeah. You know, um, I, I think both of them have over, I think, but if, take away even some of the bombast, right? Yeah. You know, if you were advising them, I think the answer would be say, keep in mind, circumstances have been in your favor, <laughs> you know, in, in a major way. I'm not really sure if it's been the, kind of the success of that playbook, you know, 
I think sometimes it can be hard, right? When you're analyzing political situations, it's kind of like, um, uh, uh, like watching a sporting event in the, in the sense of you can have either the team itself is very strong in what's happening, or it can be what those externalities that happen, right? The other team has something weird happen. Somebody's on the injured reserve. You have the storm roll, like in yeah. football, you know, you have to end up playing outside. Right. Yeah. Uh, there can be those kinds of moments and it can, it can be, you know, when you're, when you're spectating it, you miss all of that. Or, or you, right. you, you just, no, you throw all, it's easy to throw that all to the side. I, I agree completely. Bit. I was just really saying the same thing about Santos a minute ago. Oh, you're saying now, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I say he just got in there because of weird contingencies. And you're saying Marjorie Taylor Green just got in there. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's why she has that's why yeah. she has any committee assignments, to be real honest. I don't think she would otherwise. Yeah. You know? But she sort of, you know, is willing to um, exercise the power that she has as, you know, there's so many little constituencies that if they don't stick with McCarthy, he can't do anything. Yeah. And, and she's and she's one of them, you know, which gives her an unusual amount of yeah. temporary power. Right. Uh, right. So. But yeah. What else? What anything else we should be thinking about in terms of Santos that I've missed? Oh, um, I, yeah. One thing you mentioned the unemployment uh, insurance fraud. One thing I just thought was especially hilarious about that is that while he applied, he collected twenty four thousand in uninsurance un, un, unemployment compensation. Um, he collect, I've said uninsurance. I meant unemployment. unemployment <laughs> uh, he collected twenty four thousand in unemployment compensation while he was earning one hundred twenty thousand dollars working as an, in, at an investment company. But then just last week, he was like one of the co-sponsors on a bill to crack down on un- unemployment compensation fraud, uh, which, which really cracked me up. <laughs> Listen, I mean, other people, yeah. if there's not money there for him to embezzle, right. what's he going to do? He gonna, right? you know, yeah. He's got to live in 120 a year. Yeah. Like, how will his children live? Okay, so I'm, because we're, we're face-to-face, one of the things I've always assumed about us is that we're both hand-talkers. So yeah. I'm just going to tell our, our listeners, right, we are both hand <laughs> you, yeah. If you're talking about Santos, you all the motion. I was like, I have always pictured this in my head, but now I get to see it. The more years we yeah, – I've been teaching more years than you, but for both of us, the more years we teach, the more we probably you become just, hand-talkers. Well, you're pointing at things. Yeah, yeah and, and, and you just, have to, yeah, yeah. Keep, keep, their, keep their attention. Well, you know, I bring that up because one of the things we may be doing in the future would be having some like video stuff. So, if, if, you know, if you're listening and you'd, you'd be interested in seeing the two of us, uh, you know, I, mean, I don't know why, you know, I don't. I got, I got a lot more hair than you. It's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You win on that front. Yeah, yeah. Right? I've just got like these little bits that fall out periodically. Um, <laughs> I'm actually, hair started to gross me out not yeah. too long ago. Oh. I was like. You know, I don't know. Like, anyway, we don't want yeah, to go there. That's, yeah. that's so awkward. <laughs> yeah. Instead, let's go to EPA okay. rules yep. instead of uh, uh, and instead of my weird body hair. Sounds uh, good. <laughs> <laughs> or lack thereof. Because this, this is this is this is going to spend some time on it. it. It's a little bit complicated because this week the EPA finally the finally finalized <laughs> a new Biden rule focuses on pollution from natural gas and coal plants. Now, approximately 24% of pollution in the United States from these kinds of plants. Um, But the larger problem that all presidents, again, regardless of what point of view they're coming from, has to wrestle with is that a lot of the things that we see as being green, like, so for example, electric cars and trucks, have increased the amount of pull from those locations. And so their pollution has gone up in recent years. Um, not just because of their own sources, but because we've increased the draw and demand on them. So, you know, we, we were kind of putting it through tailpipes at one point, And as you move that, you're kind of moving it here. So what do you do about that? And that's really what Biden uh, has been wrestling with uh, in a new way. And his idea, as it's been called in the press, uh, dramatic, and, and I'm going to editorialize a little bit here uh, and say 
probably unattainable to the extent that he wants to be to switch to what he calls 100% clean energy or what the EPA is calling 100% clean energy by 2035. Now, how do you get this done? So the rules try to account for a variety of plant situations by allowing states to choose how to work with those EPA standards. Now, the underlying goal is to get coal plants to either switch to hydrogen or gas or for them to install carbon capture. And that's a way where you're kind of you're capturing the carbon that would go into the air, and then you're storing that underground actually with like mineral, you're, you're kind of mineralizing it as the idea. Um, now, the reason I say is the idea is this is still something that's relatively new. Now, other plants are allowed to keep operating as is in the short term, as long as they are planning to be shut down entirely by the end of that period in 2020, uh, uh, 2035, excuse me. The EPA is doing this under the Clean Air Act and said in its statement that, quote, the proposed limits and guidelines would require ambition, uh, ambitious reductions in carbon pollution based on proven and cost-effective control technologies, end quote. Key among these, as I've already mentioned, are, quote, carbon capture and storage and clean hydrogen, end quote. Uh, by the way, if you're looking at this and kind of following along uh, as a listener, uh, carbon capture and storage is oftentimes uh, abbreviated the CCS process. Um, now, what are some of the potential problems here? We, we, we've got kind of the pragmatic sides, and we've got the legal sides, and I'm sure we're going to talk about both. One, from my point of view, and this is why I think it's going to be unattainable, is it doesn't take much to uh, look at this to see that the EPA has really been struggling with those CCS permits. Uh, and what this requires is a very specific, difficult kind of class six well to get. Because you're basically taking stuff that's dirty and nasty and you're trying to bury it effectively. And if you're not burying it effectively, it defeats the whole purpose of this um, to trap that carbon in deep rock formations. Uh, as of today, there are dozens of pending applications without any of them having allowed. As a matter of fact, if you go back to 2010, trying to get a, a, a similar-ish uh, era, the EPA has only ever been able to finalize six. That is way under what would have to happen uh, in the same amount of time to make this rule uh, 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 um, effective, useful, uh, to, be, to be compliant. Um, as a matter of fact, of those six, because of the, the problems with getting it, only two of them led to actual construction, each of which took six years to construct. These are not easy things to do. So one of the questions that I have is really going to be, if the EPA can't do the small amount of the Class six. Uh, permitting than it needs to do now. How is it going to be able to adapt to this rule? I, 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 you know, again, I'm not necessarily even against trying to have those kinds of movements, but to have a rule that we can't account for as it exists in the current form makes me say, is this going to do anything or just make an unattainable process? Um, now, that's obviously the pragmatic side of that. We can talk about that, Ken. The other side, of course, uh, is the legal side, right? Um, and we can talk more about that. West Virginia v. EPA in 2022, court ruled against the EPA's ability to regulate the uh, uh, energy industry using the Clean Air Act, saying that authority for such action belonged to Congress. So how these rules might end up getting uh, litigated is a separate but also obviously uh, important question. And then at the same time, maybe this is kind of the, one of the patterns for today, Biden is getting some uh, hit from the further left as well, like on immigration. Uh, environmentalists are basically arguing that all he's really doing is kicking the can down to 2038. And there was a lot of talk about that uh, from some of my more left-channeled friends uh, as we take a look at this. So 
Take any of those three you'd like to start with, Ken. Well, I, I know more about the legal side than the pragmatic side. Okay, so let me start, start with the legal there. side, yeah. and then we'll move to the pragmatic side. So, yeah. Yeah, so, so I, I think that you mentioned the West Virginia versus EPA uh, case, and I'll, I'll talk about that for a minute, if that's okay. And no, then, please, please. Yeah, and then, and then I, I, because I think that the new rules are really um, a response to that case, that they're actually designed to be compliant with that case. Okay, so, so, so walk us yeah, through that. It's yeah. a good place to start. Yeah, so the, the, the West Virginia uh, versus EPA case involved uh, Obama-era regulations, the, the Clean Power Plan. And the, the Clean Power Plan um, was a kind of ambitious way of implementing some provisions that are in the Clean Air Act. The Clean Air Act is a statute that Congress enacted back in 1970. It's still in effect. And one of the um, you know, issues with, with greenhouse gases is um, greenhouse gases were not really known in 1970 when Congress enacted the Clean Air Act. So, so there's a definition of pollutants that's in the Clean Air Act. The EPA was created by that act and given a lot of authority to regulate pollutants, both from motor vehicle tailpipes and from uh, stationary sources like factories. Um, and, and for factories, for stationary sources, there's this whole permitting process, and you were talking about that already, because um, stationary sources are necessarily going to emit some pollutants, and so they have to be permitted in terms of how much pollutants and what pollutants and all that. So carbon uh, wasn't considered a pollutant in 1970, and, and carbon is perfectly safe to breathe. And in 1970, I think the concept of pollutants was more based on things that would be unsafe to breathe. Uh, but, um, but later, uh, as people became aware that, that carbon um, uh, causes climate change, which does harm human health, uh, um, the, 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 actually, ironically, this is one where the Supreme Court um, moved before the EPA did. The EPA was not considering carbon to be a pollutant, and their decision not to consider carbon to be a pollutant was challenged in a, in a case in 2005 called Massachusetts versus the EPA. And in that case, the support held that carbon uh, is a pollutant under the Clean Air Act and, and must be treated as a pollutant. That, that's a ruling that came from the Supreme Court before the EPA would have reached it on its own. Um, but now, um, ever since 2005 and since the Massachusetts versus EPA case, the, the, the um, EPA has treated carbon emissions as pollution emissions. So for stationary sources, they regulate the carbon emissions as part of the permitting process. And, and you were talking about that also. So in the clean power plan from 2014, with the support of almost every power company, um, the, the Biden administration uh, promulgated regulations that as, as a means of um, uh, uh, regulating carbon emissions and using statutory language that requires um, EPA to regulate the best, sor best source of emission reduction, um, the, the Clean Power Plan says, well, the best way to regulate or to limit carbon emissions is to shut down the factories that emit carbon. And so they said uh, all, the, all the coal burning plants and, and gasoline burning plants um, have to be replaced with, uh, over, over a time schedule um, with, with solar plants and wind plants and nuclear plants and plants that don't emit carbon. And, and so that, was, that rule was the rule that was challenged in the West Virginia versus EPA case. So in West Virginia versus EPA, um, no power, no power company challenged this. It was the government of West Virginia that challenged it, right. and that's why it's called West Virginia versus EPA. Um, and there was even a delay in the case moving forward because when Trump got uh, took office, um, he suspended the clean power plan, even though um, Obama had promulgated it um, in 2014. It barely took effect before Trump suspended it, 
And then there was a four-year suspension of it. And then when Biden took office, he, he unsuspended it and put it back into effect. And so that's when the Supreme Court finally reviewed it. Um, well, during that time, almost all the power plants that w- would have been regulated under it um, complied with it, even though Trump had suspended it. So we did have a lot of compliance with the, the goals and timelines and benchmarks in the Clean Power Plan. But eventually the um, Supreme Court held that the clean power plant uh, exceeded the EPA's authority. Right. And, and the way they interpreted that was they said um, regulating, um, you know, regulating the, the idea that you have to shut down a power plant and, and start a different kind of power plant. You shut down a coal plant and start a solar plant or shut down a gas plant and start a wind plant. Um, that, that's not, um, that goes beyond the authority to regulate for the best source of emission reduction. And regulating for the best source of emission reduction should mean the agency should take the plants as they find them and then require them to um, emit as few pollutants as possible, but not not to shut down a whole plant and replace it with a different kind of plant. And that case is probably even more important outside of environmental law, because in the same case, the the doctrine that the court uh, announced for for how it knew that was this doctrine called the major questions doctrine. And, right. And we, yeah, talked, we talked we about talked about that, that yeah, one way back yeah, when yeah, we did yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, so that comes from the same case. So it was a major question. The question of replacing gas plants with wind plants was a major question. So Congress should have to le- legislate that. It shouldn't come from the agency. Well, anyhow, I give all that background because what, um, what, what, what the Biden EPA just did is they said, okay, well, the West Virginia versus EPA case tells us we can't require anyone to shut down a coal plant or a gas plant. Um, uh, they, they get to choose what kind of plant, but, but we can regulate them. Um, to make them use the best source of emission reduction. So if they're using a gas plant or coal, we can tell them, well, you've got to use these existing technologies that currently exist to reduce the amount of emissions. And what they did here is they ratcheted up the, 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 the um, requirement to use technology to reduce emissions um, very, very high. Um, so that for most companies, um, it, it probably would turn out that it would be cheaper for them uh, to just replace their plants um, than to use all this technology on the coal plants or the, or the gas plants. Um, and so I think the, 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 the litigated concept here will be, you know, probably the government of West Virginia, again, will, will, will file a suit and say, um, well, if they're, if they're limiting the, the coal plant emissions so severely that it's not economic to keep operating a coal plant, and 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 that and that de facto that's forcing the power companies to switch to clean sources. Then they've just really re- re- recreated the same system of regulation that we just struck down. Um, but I think the Biden administration's answer to that would be, well, you know, formally, what the court told us was that we have authority to um, require the use of existing technologies to reduce carbon emissions from existing plants. And that's all we're doing here. We're not, we're not doing anything different than that. So that should be legal uh, even after West Virginia versus EPA. Now, I, I think, you know, arguably, you know, for, for a court, that's a close question. But I'd say given the court that we have, I would bet that the Biden administration will lose. Um, you know, they, they might win in the uh, lower courts, but I, I don't know that they'll win in the Supreme Court. And uh, um, but, you know, I think the, the one thing here, and I will say uh, in support of what the administration is doing, even if they're probably going to um, eventually lose in court. Um, and it goes also to answer one of the other things you said, which is how would they even implement this? It would require too much permitting. 
Um, I think the thing you have to remember in both cases, even if this would require too much permitting to be practical, and even if they're ultimately going to lose in, in the support, um, the thing is most power companies want this, right? And so most power companies are, are probably going to voluntarily comply um, no matter whether the, the court says they have to, no matter whether their permits can, can be processed. And that's really what we've already seen uh, you know, about the, the clean power plant from the year 2014. You know, we're now up to 2023. That plan is nine years old. For four of those years, President Trump suspended it. For the past one of those years, the Supreme Court has said it's unenforceable. Um, but even with most of the time since that plant was promulgated, it hasn't really been able to be enforced. Most power companies um, uh, have complied with it anyhow. So I think we may, we may see a lot of that. Well, so here's what's interesting. Now. I'm glad you brought that up because I, w- I wanted to kind of come back to that on the, on the uh, pragmatic side anyway, yeah. which is to say... You know, a lot of times, uh, you know, one of the th- one of the things that uh, supporters can get is to be part of the Discord group, and so a lot of times I'm getting asked, "Well, what would a libertarian think about fill in the blank?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, oftentimes, maybe a little bit uh, uh, incredulously, which is fine. I, I love, you know, that's that's wonderful. I, I like taking those kinds of positions, and that's. But it was hard not to be reading what's going on with the EPA rules to, to say, okay, so here is a process that obviously that coal plants want to do that we see as being good that we can't get done because the EPA can't get through it in time. Now we're going to have a rule that's going to make you do the thing that we couldn't get done in time. And is it really the rule that was driving this? Or as you'd already noted, you know, was this kind of external to the rule? I, I wonder sometimes about the mod, some of the, mo- not all of it. So again, I'm, I'm not making a, a, an overly broad, like, let's get rid of all the state. Like, that's not my point here. Uh, but rather to say, but when I see things like this with the EPA to go, what was really the point of all of this, right? The movement was going to happen one way or the other because of the intrinsic market forces to push and the environmental forces pushing some of these companies to want to change those behaviors. Uh, and if anything, the best thing I can see here is, is they might have moved even a little more rapidly down this starting in 2010 had the, the, had the, uh, uh, the Class 6 processing been more attainable from the EPA, which they're now demanding. So I sometimes, in response, when listeners say, well, what, what, what would you do about this? I say, well, I don't always think that the government necessarily, especially age, let me rephrase that. Agencies don't always drive things as effectively as I think it might seem. And this seems like a really good example of that. Am I wrong? Can, maybe, give yeah. me, no, the here's agency, an opportunity. Am I wrong? And if, if so, because you seem to be agreeing with me before I even got yeah, there. Yeah. Well, I, I think the thing is the agency is playing a very constructive role in facilitating this. Um, they may not be driving it, but it couldn't really happen without the agency because the you know, the, the people sometimes talk about this theory of agency capture, that the agencies are captured by the industries mm-hmm. that they regulate, that they really just do the things that the industries that they regulate uh, want them to do. Um, and I, I think that's usually seen as a bad thing. But in, in this particular instance, maybe maybe that's a good thing, um, because the the industry, you know, you might, well, if the agencies are, are captured, um, you know, why does the industry even want to capture them? Wouldn't it be better to just be left alone? than to have um, the agency writing regulations and they're, they're dictating the content of the regulations. But I think there's several reasons that that's beneficial. In this case, I think both for the industry and for the public. Um, one is that there's a lot of difficult scientific and technological questions. You know, it's one thing to, to sort of say it in a broad way like we are, 
Um, well, the industry wants to move towards cleaner power generation. They they want to move towards not emitting as much carbon. They've got to live in the world just like we do, and they don't want climate change and hurricanes and all this. But but to actually know how to put that into practice um, requires a, a, a really great deal of expertise that may exceed what any individual power company has. And an agency rulemaking process sort of brings to bear, you know, all of the power companies are submitting comments and information and scientific studies, and the agency has a really, really good scientific staff, and there's a dialogic process there that might look like a captured agency, but it's, it's really a dialogue between the industry and the, and the regulators um, that, that allows for a, a very full kind of exchange of scientific information technological information. And, the, you know, and these companies have scientists who I think have the same goals that the EPA in this case would have. And so they're, they're working together to, to produce a, the best plan. And then there's also this other aspect of collective action problem. Sometimes the agencies want to be regulated because they, they, they want to do something that might be a little more costly. I'm going to pause the, you just yeah, a second there because I don't think you meant quite what you said. Yeah. You said the agency wants to be regulated. Oh, I'm sorry, the industry. The industry. I, I thought that's yeah. what you meant. Yeah, I just wanted to say The industry wants to be regulated because there may be something that the industry thinks is beneficial for the industry, but it wouldn't be beneficial for them to be the only one doing it. They want all everyone else in the industry to do it. Um, and here, I think you can get to that. Even if, the, even if courts are going to say the, these rules are not enforceable, um, I think it's, this is a small industry and they would have all been working together to develop these rules. And so I think they could have more confidence that all the major players are going to continue to comply with the rules that they've mutually developed, whether or not the court says that they have to. And so that, that kind of collective action problem, I think you wouldn't get to agreed upon standards of exactly what the rules are that they're all going to agree to comply with. If, if you didn't have a, an agency process to work that out. Okay, so now we're, we're really going into bonus overtime show yeah. here for a minute. So, but we did say that we were going to talk at least a little bit about Ross, a little bit yeah, about yeah. that. So let's, let's at least touch this. I'll set this up. We'll hit it. We don't have to spend a, a, a ton of time here. Um, but we do want to talk about the National Pork Producers Council versus uh, Ross because the Supreme Court just handed this decision down this week. Um, in 2018, California voters passed... 12, which amended the California Health and Safety Code to prohibit the sale of pork from animals confined in a manner inconsistent with California standards. Now, a lot of this had to do with the minimum amount of, uh, of uh, size for uh, pigs to have in terms of caging and fencing, right? So there's, uh, we don't have to get into all those details, but, but that's the, uh, what was going on. Now, trade associations representing the pork industry uh, and farmer, uh, pig farmers challenged that law violating what's called the Dormant Commerce Clause, which is really kind of uh, an interesting portion of the Constitution, potentially. And what this does is it basically says, well, it prohibits states from discriminating against uh, uh, interstate commerce or imposing undue burdens on interstate commerce, or maybe more basic English, because I'm used to, you do, you do uh, grad students and I do undergrads, right? You know, as an undergrad class, we would say, look, states can't make rules that create burdens that are too large on other states, even if they aren't explicitly about other states, right? There's kind of this, and that line is fuzzy, right? I mean, again, that's, my, that's, that's the better undergraduate way, I might say, you know. 
Um, now, one of the interesting, I was, I couldn't help but thinking about that. I'm going to kind of plug what we do. If you, if you follow us, uh, if you are a supporter, you've been following us long. We actually covered the Commerce Clause yeah. and a bunch of this. Yeah, and the Dormant uh, Commerce Clause. Yes, we yeah. talked about the Dormant Commerce Clause because we just got through Article 1. And so if you want to join us as we go through the Constitution, that's what Ken and I have been doing. Uh, we're going to be starting Article 2 today. I would love for you guys, if you want to do that, that's a, it's a really good time to do. We were doing this, uh, uh, join us with this. But here, in just this particular uh, uh, case, uh, the Supreme Court ended up upholding the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals Ninth Circuit uh, decision saying that it did not violate the Dormant Commerce Clause. Uh, and, and that was a little bit potentially surprising for some. I wasn't quite as surprised, but it still was a messy decision, right? And it was, and when I say messy, just so the listeners can understand, the individuals who were agreeing don't always come together, and who was concurring and then concurring together don't always... You had a really unusual uh, set of decisions that got to the majority opinion, you know, agreeing in part, concurring in part, and, the, and not the normal ideological individuals were teaming up on that. Um, what, what was your, your take on this, especially because I love always uh, coming to these cases that maybe push a little bit on, you know, well, you know, the justices are always kind of being ideological. This is one where you saw them really stepping outside of that box. You know, at least in terms of voting. Maybe, maybe stepping outside of that box. I wouldn't say they stepped outside of it as much because, although you're absolutely right that the, the, it was a messy just vote. Um, there was no actual majority opinion. Uh, the, the votes that came out in the direction of the majority were, were five to four, and there were different um, uh, things. But the thing about it is, it was a super easy case. And it should have been a nine nothing case, and it should have came out the way it did. And and if you if you if you start you know trying to think about why did the court find this to be such a difficult case, um, I think it's because you had a couple of justices who just couldn't let go of their hatred of California, who just couldn't let go of their hatred of you know this kind of regulation, and and that's really the the only reason that they. So then, yeah. why some of the split among the liberal justices then? Yeah. So I think in in the in the. Case of um, there wasn't such a split of it was just Justice Jackson right who, who dis- mm-hmm. dissented. So, so but, the, and, but yeah. then you also have um, oh who who sided with the, so, the concurrence in part. Sotomayor, yeah, yeah, Sotomayor. So she was only kind of halfway there as well. Yeah, I mean, so her, you have two of them kind of right. splintering. Well, in her case, though, I think the the reason I thought it would be unanimous is I thought there was two ways to get to the same result, mm. and and she took one of them, and and Gorsuch took the other one. But but so I always thought that there would actually be disagreements about which way you get to California winning. But I, I don't think there's any cases previously that would support striking down this law. And yet you still had a, a few justices voting to strike down this law. And 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 you're right that Jackson was one of them. Exactly. And that's yeah. what was also, you know, again, on the side that you. Y- yeah. Again, because the thesis yeah, on the side I that I think is obviously wrong. Yeah. So, so yeah. I, don't, I don't I don't know why Jackson joined that side. She didn't uh, write her own opinion. No. Um, so yeah. She joins with uh, with, uh, with uh, uh, I can't remember if it was Roberts or Kavanaugh. Let me take a look. I think it's uh, Roberts. Uh, Roberts. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. She joins with Roberts. Yeah. So um, so let me run briefly through the Dormant Commerce Clause for a minute. And then I think. I can explain why I, I think it was such an easy case, and I do think it came out the right way, but I, I, I have a hard time seeing why the justices didn't all agree with that. Uh, so the, the, the Dormant Commerce Clause is not a clause in the Constitution. It's, right. It's, it doesn't exist at all. It doesn't right? exist yeah. at all. Yeah. It's an inference from the existence of the Commerce Clause. And so the, the Commerce Clause says Congress has the power to regulate interstate commerce. 
Um, and the question, a question that arose very, very early um, in, in uh, U.S. history um, in a case called Gibbons versus Ogden that was uh, decided by Chief Justice John Marshall um, was, uh, well, suppose there's an interstate commerce going on and, and Congress has actually not regulated it. There's no, there's no federal statute that regulates it. Um, are states allowed to regulate it? Um, and, 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 and the answer uh, was, well, um, usually yes, but not always. Um, and that's sort of the question from uh, uh, Gibbons versus Ogden. And over time, um, the, the, there's been different tests in different eras. And, and sometimes the court has adopted a test for you know, when can and when can't states regulate um, interstate commerce. And, and at present time, we have two viable tests. Um, so one test, and this one there's been more support for on the court, would be, um, well, if, if a state passes a law that facially discriminates against out-of-state businesses or out-of-state buyers or out-of-state sellers, treats them differently than in-state businesses or in-state buyers or in-state sellers, states can't do that, um, even if Congress hasn't said that they can't do that. And so that's kind of the most best established strand of dormant Commerce Clause jurisprudence. Most of the justices agree with that. Um, uh, even Justice Thomas, who doesn't agree with the concept of a dormant Commerce Clause, does agree with that principle, but it's just that he would situate it in the Import-Export Clause of Article 1, Section 10. Yeah. So you've actually got unanimous agreement among the justices that um, facial discrimination against out-of-state businesses is, is one of those things that states can't do, um, even if Congress hasn't gotten around to prohibiting it. A power denied to the states. It's a power denied yeah. to the states, but it's implicitly so. It's denied to the states implicitly because of the explicit grant of the commerce power to Congress. Um, and then uh, um, uh, the, the other one, which has been much more controversial, um, it's still in modern usage, but it, it is more controversial, is, um, well, what if a state uh, passes a, a law that regulates interstate commerce in some way, but a way that's not discriminatory, where, where the burden falls exactly the same on businesses in the state as businesses out of the state. And there's a test that's um, associated with a case called Pike versus Bruce Church from 1970. Uh, it's called the Pike Balancing Test. And, and the test is, well, if you've got a state that's engaging in facially neutral, non-discriminatory regulation, um, but the regulation is said to unduly burden interstate commerce, um, then um, the court will sometimes say, well, if the if the burden on interstate commerce is is totally out of proportion to any um, uh, putative local benefit um, that we would consider it an undue burden, um, then that that can also be unconstitutional. So that's the Pike balancing test. Now that test has almost never um, leads to findings of unconstitutionality. So in in all the fifty years that it's been around, there's not more than three or four Supreme Court cases. Um, where state laws are struck down under that test. And um, in, in a significant uh, number of opinions, um, Justice Thomas and, and Justice Scalia, uh, for many years, wrote that they don't think that's a legitimate test. And they, they think that um, uh, as long as state legislation is non-discriminatory, um, state, states can do it, and, and that there, there isn't any test about undue burden. So, so they saw that as a, a sort of protection for federalism, states' rights type issue. Right. And uh, um, so, so you sort of had, you know, some voices on the court for a long time saying that there, there you know, shouldn't even be like balancing tests, that the only test should be the discrimination test. And then you had the majorities on the court always saying, well, there, there is a pike balancing test also, 
but we need to see a very severe disproportion between the 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 um, local benefit and the burden on interstate commerce. So. Um, so, you know, I don't know how much if you want an example of that, but I could tell you about one of the Supreme Court cases where they found that that undue burden. Um, is wow, that too much? You, to you might want to just say, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so I won't bother. Well, anyhow, in this case, so California has uh, regulated the conditions um, under which um, pigs have to be uh, uh, raised and, and slaughtered mm-hmm. um, uh, um, for, for, for pork to be able to be sold in California. So they're, they're nominally only regulating. Uh, what can be sold in California as pork, um, and the rules that they that they're applying, which would require probably a more humane standard of treatment than would be typical for the industry, um, uh, um, apply equally to pork producers who are located in California or located outside of California. So it's a totally non-discriminatory law. So that that better the, the better established line of dormant commerce clause cases about facial discrimination wouldn't would, would not yeah, apply here at all. Done. Yeah. So, so really, I think the, the big question in the case, as I saw it, was, is this going to be the case where now that there's enough conservative justices, they're going to wave the flag that Scalia and Thomas always waved and say, you know, we need to get rid of this, this doctrine altogether? Um, or are they going to, you know, preserve the doctrine, but say, you know, this, this doesn't apply here because um, California has very strong interest in protection and humane treatment of animals? Um, so in the actual opinion, uh, Gorsuch, who gets the four votes, um, he takes the Scalia-Thomas line. So there's four votes there that say um, we shouldn't have a pike balancing test. This is, this is obviously constitutional for any state to um, regulate what kind of products can be sold in their state, as long as, long as they're being even-handed and treating in-state businesses and out-of-state businesses the same, they should be allowed to do it. So there's four votes for that, but still not five. Now, the fifth vote comes from Justice Sotomayor, and she says, well, I like the pike balancing test, and and I think we should stick with a rule where sometimes we'll strike down state laws if the burden they impose on interstate commerce is way out of proportion to any putative local benefit. Um, But I find here that that there's a great public benefit in uh, states setting their own standards for protection of animals and humane treatment and really for morals and ethics. And that this is all part of the traditional state police power. And if, the, if this costs some, some, some pork producers a few bucks, you know, sometimes, you know, doing things uh, ethically costs money and that, that's fine. Um, so, 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 so Sotomayor doesn't want to jettison the pike balancing test. She wants to keep it, but, but she thinks it um, protects California's law here. And I think both of those two approaches, both, both the, the, the Gorsuch approach and the Sotomayor approach, they have firm foundations in existing doctrine, but they're, you know, different approaches from each right. other. So, so I think um, to me, like it was like I didn't have a view of which one of those two approaches would get more votes, but I actually thought you got all nine of them would have one, one, of one those or the two. other. Yeah, ones. exactly. Yeah. But what you actually get here is the, these opinions from Roberts and Kavanaugh that say, well, um, and Jackson. Yeah. Well, yeah, she joins. Yeah. And Alito joins also. Right. So yeah, Alito and Jackson. So there end up being four votes, but only two, two written opinions. Um, uh, that th- th- basically try to say, well, um, because most pork producers are outside of uh, California, um, and I guess 99% of the pork sold in California is produced outside of, of California, um, they say we should consider this to be a, a rule of uh, extraterritorial effect, and we should create a new constitutional doctrine dealing with that. Um, right. Well, well, that's really just coming out of nowhere. I mean, th- there was no constitutional doctrine dealing with that before, right? right? 
And so, so why they want that? Um, I, 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 you know, I, I, I just, it's, you know, I don't know. I, I, I feel like, I feel like Roberts and Kavanaugh and Alito, you know, I'm always suspicious of them. I just feel like they just, they don't like California. They don't like this do-gooder type law. And they're just looking to create some new doctrine to strike it down. So I actually would put that in with my usual thinking of like, they're just ideological and result-oriented. I don't have an explanation for why Justice Jackson joined them. She did not write her own opinion. Um, but, um, but I think that... Which, I, again, yeah. leads some credence to the possibility that she agree. In other she words, agreed with you, them, you, yeah. you, you, you don't write your... You only write at your own dissent if yeah. you functionally disagree with right, your no, other I, dissenters. Yeah, maybe yeah. she exactly agreed with what Roberts was saying, but, but I don't think there was any foundation in existing case law for what Roberts was saying. I think the, the foundation... You know, for, if someone wanted to vote in, in that direction... It seems to me that if they wanted to base that in existing case law, they would have had to say, well, we're going to apply the pike balancing test. We're going to weigh um, the, the, the burden on interstate commerce against the, the putative local benefits. And we think that uh, the cost to out-of-state pork producers to comply with this will be very high in dollars. Um, and that the, the benefits to Californians in you know, knowing that their meat was humanely produced is kind of airy fairy and hard hard to hard to, to quantify and just doesn't add up to as much as as the the burden on pork producers and I think that would have been a way of applying the pike balancing test I don't think it would have been a very good way of applying it but really they didn't the the the, the dissenters didn't do that no. they, they they just said um, they said that just that because California um, is trying to regulate pork production that mostly happens in Nebraska they just shouldn't be allowed to do that. And, and Gorsuch, I think, has a complete answer to that in his plurality opinion, where he says, well, you seem to be saying that, you know, small states that don't have big impacts on the national economy can regulate extraterritorial all they want to. Yeah, yeah. But it's only California that can't do that. And, uh, and, and it would be a very asymmetric kind of rule. And I, I think he's absolutely right about that. In fact, I was pleasantly surprised to see Gorsuch makes it such, such a strong response to that argument. <laughs> Well, so here we go. You yep. you agree with Gorsuch? I agree with Gorsuch. <laughs> I, 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 agree with, I agree with Gorsuch's. I actually like Gorsuch's approach more than I like Sotomayor's approach. In this case, um, but I think both Gorsuch's and Sotomayor's, I think, have firm uh, founding, firm grounding in existing Supreme Court doctrine. I just don't see that in the Roberts opinion at all. I hear you. Well, I appreciate you kind of putting that through because that's that's not an easy, you know, it, it's, it's a, you know, when you get cases like that, it's always hard all by itself. But then this is an unusual kind of issue. It's not one that comes up. It has a right. profound effect. Yeah, I yeah. think it does. Yeah. Well, I think we we, you know, we, we got we got we're gonna call that the show, right? If you're still with us, uh, if you're not on this, if you're still listening, you should be a supporter of this politics, guys, right? Because we you know this this is almost two hour show right there. Uh, and so I hope you'll you'll be considering to become one because uh, you know without supporters this is what makes the podcast uh, go and you get all kind of cool stuff and the thing that Ken and I are going to do here in just moments is we're going to do uh, our bonus show which is where we're going to be going through the Constitution we've gotten through Article One uh, and I, I kind of wondered how long everybody would be sticking along with us and you're loving it so come join us as we start Article Two it's better in Article Two than never right you can always go back and listen to Article One which is another cool thing you get access to all of those shows so you can follow through the whole the whole bit but you can always jump in here as we get into Article Two this week is a wonderful week to become a supporter. Uh, and get that. We talked during the show about the fact that you may be part of Discord, you know, so that me interacting with uh, those of you on Discord. Uh, we have such a vibrant community there anymore. Uh, I'd love for you to be a part of that as well. Um, 
So please consider becoming that because there's all there's kind of gear and benefits at all those levels of support. So besides me just rattling on about it, you can see all of those options by heading to patreon.com slash politics guys. Uh, and so again, if you head to patreon.com slash politics guys, you can see all those levels of support. You can become a supporter. You can get the ad free version of this show, for example, and so much more. Now, there's other ways you can support us on Venmo or at politics guys. You can also support the show through PayPal. All of those support and support links are in the show notes, or you can just head directly to politicsguys.com slash support for all of that. If you'd like to get that bonus midweek show, but you're just not in a position financially to support the podcast right now, totally get that, right? I've got three kiddos and I don't have a big salary. I know what that's like. Uh, Something crazy is going on, right? You got something medical going on. So please, if that is the case for you, all you got to do is reach out to Mike at politicsguys.com and he's going to get you set up with that. Now, whether you're a supporter or not, we would really appreciate it if you subscribe to the show, rate us and review us on whatever podcast app you use. You know, being in those top hits is really key to driving future uh, listeners. So please share those episodes. If you've got a question, comment, correction, great manifesto or really anything else, you want to share, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. You can also always get us at face on Facebook and Twitter, and you're going to find all of those links in the show notes on the podcast app of your choice. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Marino, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, Don Oglesby, and Ivan English. We'll be back with a new episode this midweek. Hope you'll join us then.